0: talking feds is sponsored by our friends at total wine and more rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine spirits and beers
1: with the passage of the build back better act we this democratic congress are taking our place in the long and honorable heritage of our democracy with legislation that will be the pillar of health and financial security in america
2: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Our weekly roundtable convenes in the immediate wake of two seismic stories, a double development the likes of which I can't recall. On Friday, the House passed along party lines a $2.4 trillion spending bill, the centerpiece of President Biden's domestic agenda, that if it passes the Senate, a non-trivial if, will be among the most transformative pieces of legislation in American history, with massive national investments in health care, education, and climate change. On the heels of that legislative lightning came the thunder of the acquittal in the much-watched Kyle Rittenhouse trial— which immediately began to play out along the country's deep divide. Many observers from the deep red pro-Trump crowd lionized Reddenhouse, while blue America largely saw him as a dangerous vigilante, whose acquittal, moreover, was inseparable from his race. To break down both of these huge stories, we have a fantastic panel of commentators and public officials, and they are... Laura Jarrett, the anchor of CNN's Early Start with Christine Roman. She previously was a correspondent based in Washington, D.C. She's now moved to Manhattan, covering the Justice Department and legal issues. And before that, an attorney in private practice. Most importantly for us, she's a repeat guest on Talking Feds, and it's always such a great pleasure to welcome her. Thanks so much for being here, Laura. Always great
1: to be with you, here.
2: First time on Talking Feds, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, representing the 8th District of Illinois, serves among other committees on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and he's on the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. Before entering Congress, he served in a number of offices in the Illinois state government. Congressman Krishnamurti, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Feds. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Harry. And Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of the Judiciary Committee, the Oversight and Reform Committee, and the January 6th Select Committee, among others. He, of course, presented the House's case in the second impeachment of President Trump. He previously was a state senator in Maryland and for 25 years, a professor of constitutional law at American University. He's the author of two books on the Supreme Court. You have a new book coming out imminently, yes? What is that? I've got a book about our son, Tommy,
3: and about the insurrection and about the impeachment, the 25th Amendment, and the impeachment trial. And it comes out on January 6th. It's called Unthinkable,
2: Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. Wow. So we will be looking for that. Hopefully, we can even have an episode on talking books. Okay. So, wow, a few hours ago, the House passed the Build Back Better bill, the centerpiece of President Biden's social agenda. The entire exhausted Democratic caucus stood and cheered as if it were an extra innings walk-off three-run homer. And after weeks of tug and pull between wings of the party, it felt that way. So let's just start there. The sausage-making was fast and furious at the end. I've heard now a price tag of $2.4 trillion, which was several hundred billion dollar increase from the figure being bandied about just a few days ago. What were the final steps that cleared the way for passage this morning?
0: I think the final steps were, as you know, getting a CBO score. Some people wanted to know what the final price tag was and how much would be raised. And then quite frankly, I personally think getting the infrastructure deal done And providing momentum was really important. I I sensed, uh, and I'd be curious what Jamie has to think, but I sensed a real coming together in the last few days, basically remembering what our Democratic Party stands for, what our values are, making sure that everyone has a chance to get on the up escalator of the economy. And that includes women, by the way. 2.5 million women dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic to care for their children or elders. And so this package includes that crucial child care and elder care support. I also authored provisions with regard to investing in workforce training. And so many people are uh, attracted to that because we're in a time of a labor shortage. And so I think at the end of the day, everyone came together and now it's off to the Senate.
2: Congressman Raskin, if I can ask you how it felt on the floor. And did you feel a sense of suspense? There was a lot of calm confidence that the speaker tried to project that this would all be happening. But day to day, we certainly were hearing about roiled debates. Did you always feel like this is certainly going to happen or was it high drama in your mind?
3: Well, I agree completely with what Raja just said, which is the die was cast when we passed the infrastructure legislation. It was a moment of such profound catharsis and unity within the Democratic caucus. And all of us were able to come back to our districts and to say, we are delivering this record historic investment in roads and bridges and trails and rails and ports and airports and cybersecurity and universal broadband and everything. And I think everybody remember this is what we're there for. We are there to make government work for the common man, the common woman, the common good of the People And so there was going to be no turning back, I think, on Build Back Better. But I do think there was tremendous suspense to it. I mean, you could say that's the silver lining. I mean, there are a lot of twists and turns to get us here because the Democratic Party is much bigger, it's much more heterogeneous. The Will
2: Rogers line applies, yeah.
3: Yeah. We had our Will Rogers moment, you know, and it's a diverse party, and there's people pulling in different directions, but we found the moral center of gravity, which is we got to deliver for the people of the country. So we're very proud of this package, but we're operating on literally the slenderest of margins. I mean- in the Senate, it's a majority of 50-50. It's only because they can pull in the VP every once in a while to right. break the title. On our side, we've got three votes. And so any group of friends can decide to overthrow the whole
2: chess game. So it's very suspenseful. Yeah, we now face the fiefdom, or the country does, of Senator Manchin. But Laura, so I think what the congressmen are, are saying is, oddly enough, a validation of Manchin or the position that the centrists in the party were taking to pass the infrastructure bill first. Remember, there were some members of the party who thought that was a bad way to go. It looks as if that kind of primed the pump for today's even more historic passage.
1: Well, and the timing was so important given the results of the elections just two weeks ago, right? And so there was this feeling, as the congressman mentioned, of needing to have a tangible deliverable. What's interesting about it is, of course, this piece of legislation will have impacts so much quicker than the traditional infrastructure bill. The traditional infrastructure bill is something that the country obviously desperately needs. We need our roads and bridges and critical infrastructure to function. We need there not to be lead pipes in the country, but the idea that you're going to get a cash influx in your bank account Every month, the idea that you're going to have universal pre-K, the idea that we're going to finally have paid leave in this country, a national standard when we've been the embarrassment of the developed world. Those are all things that people are going to feel much faster. They may not feel them like gas prices. They may not feel them like inflation and the idea of not having what you want on your store shelves, but they are going to see the tangible results of that. And I would think from a political standpoint, That's something you could bring home to your
2: district in a powerful way. It sure feels like an absolute new day. Maybe I'm intoxicated by the uh, immediate (laughs) aftermath, but the speaker said this is going to be the pillar of health and financial security in America. What do you think, Congressman? Is that hyperbolic or is that fair? Are we in sort of New Deal territory?
0: Well, I'd like to say that it's going to make a positive difference in everyone's lives. One other thing I wanted to mention, I just came from a luncheon where I met with some companies, including some in the clean energy industry. I'm the co-chair of the Bipartisan Solar Caucus. And I got to tell you, as far as they're concerned, this BBB bill gets a AAA rating to help combat climate change over time. The incentives to get people to use clean power The amount of assistance that's given to transition us to a net zero emissions economy by 2050 is staggering, almost $500 billion over 10 years. And I think that it's not a stretch to say that this is foundational for protecting our planet. And I think that combined with kind of the good feeling about the other parts of the package, to me, almost a moral imperative in addition to being an imperative grounded in economics and kitchen table issues. And so I really sense that, you know what, the Republicans are going to be a no on everything. they are no on climate change, no on investment in workforce training, no on paid leave. We have to be the yes caucus. We have to get together and govern. That's what I think we ultimately ended up doing in a way that, quite frankly, I think surprised a lot about observers. They didn't think that it was going to happen today, and it did.
2: Congressman Raskin, New Deal territory, that big? Absolutely, both
3: in terms of the corresponding investment in the social infrastructure and then what Raja says about an historic and landmark investment in climate readiness to deal with the civilizational emergency that we're in. So you've got the New Deal, you've got the Great Society, and you've got Build Back Better. I mean, I wish we had a a somewhat grander name for it. The White House had a little to say there, huh? Well, the Build Back Better aid sounds like it's kind of a campaign slogan, which yeah. I suppose it was, that is morphed into a statement of public policy, but I would call it the Strong Democracy because it's a government that's investing in the people, which is the purpose of democracy. And we need to complete it by investing in the democratic infrastructure, the voting rights of the people, the electoral machinery, to make sure we're not vulnerable to the kind of authoritarian nonsense that we saw in the 2020 election. And it will be the democracies of the world and the democratic movements of the world that confront climate change in a meaningful way, while the authoritarian movements want to stick their head in the sand and pretend that it's not there. I mean, they will ride us into destruction as a civilization.
2: It's also, of course, Build Back Better makes it sound like we're repairing past damage, but it's very forward looking. So, Laura, we have remarkable climate change investment.
1: $55 billion. Right.
2: And the head reels at the price tags, but give give us some itemized items or whatever. <laughs> What
1: you meant. I knew what you meant. The bulk of it seems to be, as the congressman articulated, is in the form of incentives. You're trying to help corporations do what they should do to be good corporate citizens and to make good investments in solar energy and put panels on that are supposed to be better for the environment. And it's sort of like a progressive's pipe dream. I mean, truly, climate came out ahead in this bill, I think, in a way that in the beginning of the negotiations, it wasn't at all clear that that was going to happen. It seems like climate is really the winner here. And it makes sense if you're trying to think about an investment for our future and for our, our children's future. It seems to be banking on the way that this is the way to do
2: it. It's, it's really almost like six or seven huge bills and can't yeah. underscore enough politically, socially, culturally, just as a mitzvah, if I can use the word, of the pre-K program that you're talking about for Americans. Let's talk for a moment about the price tag. Congressman Krishna Murphy said people were waiting for the scoring by the CBO. The line here is it will pay for itself. And we've heard that mantra from legislators before. The CBO says it could add, $367 billion, maybe less than a quarter of what's the Trump tax cuts cost. Between those two, what has to go right? What's the linchpin of whether or not it actually will pay for itself?
0: One of the uh, provisions that received some scrutiny was an investment in the IRS and what that would yield. I think that we are proposing to invest upwards of 80 to $90 billion in enforcement measures. And we think that that would yield based on Treasury estimates. I mean, these are some really smart people, both Republican and Democratic commissioners of the IRS, thought that it would yield about $400 billion over 10 years. The CBO came back and said they think it's actually closer to $120 billion. And I think that is obviously going to make up the difference between what we said and what the CBO ended up coming back with. But I got to tell you, Harry, just going back to values, this investment in the IRS is something that my constituents want to see happen. They don't want to be in a situation where only some people have to pay taxes and other people don't. And it's just common sense and it's based on our value of tax equity. Forget raising any rates. People are not paying the taxes that they owe currently. And that's unfair. And that cuts across Republicans and Democrats among my constituents. I think that in terms of what has to happen to make this go well long-term, we've got to execute and implement this properly. We don't want to be in a situation where, for instance, we've allocated X amount of money for climate change incentives or for childcare or universal pre-K, and it doesn't get used. People need to, in the administration, working with the states and local jurisdictions, see that the money gets used productively, and it makes a meaningful impact in people's lives. By the way, one thing we didn't talk about were the immigration provisions. I am an immigrant myself. I'm one of the few naturalized citizens in Congress. I call myself a new American. The immigration provisions in here could be hugely beneficial for our economy long-term because we're gonna be creating taxpayers. And that's a hell of a good thing for our country, not to mention, a lot of entrepreneurs and business people and employees who are going to power us forward.
2: I work in this area of the law, and I can just say anybody from any side of the aisle will tell you that it's amazing amount of money the IRS feels that is left uncollected. If its enforcement could bulk up, it would be dramatic. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
4: Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we crack open the topic of aging wine in traditional oak barrels versus stainless steel tanks. There are many types of oak from various countries, but in general, oak is the most pliable wood, great for forming a barrel and even better for storing liquids. Oak barrels have a limited life cycle, though, whereas stainless steel can be used over and over. Point for stainless. There's also new oak, which has a tendency to give wine the complexities that make it interesting, adding spice aromas such as coconut and vanilla or even hints of allspice and cinnamon. On the other hand, old oak doesn't pick up much flavor, but it does give the wine a softer texture. Stainless steel, on the other hand, is exactly what you'd expect. Clean and contemporary, adding little to the wine, in a good way that is. Wines aged in stainless tanks are crisp and focused, allowing the fresh fruit flavor to shine for the truest expression of the grape. So, who wins in oak versus stainless? Why not pick up one of each at your local Total Wine and you decide. And remember,
2: always think interesting,
4: drink interesting. Thanks to our friends
2: at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. A couple political questions. First, any thoughts about this mini filibuster from Kevin McCarthy? The eight hour speech, I think it broke some kind of record full of political grievances. The bill was going to pass at that point. I don't think he was doing any sort of last minute maneuvering behind the scenes. So what was that about?
3: Well, it certainly demonstrates the decline and fall and collapse of political oratory in the GOP. <laughs> will be in the if, books. You go back to Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, which was 275 words, less than three minutes. The only line from Gettysburg that's relevant to Kevin McCarthy is the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. It was nice because at least uh, on our side of the aisle, we recovered our sense of humor, which had kind of uh, gone AWOL over the last couple of weeks with some very tough times, like the deranged homicidal internet cartoon that Paul Gosar put out about our colleague yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's been a very tense Time and we were able at least to laugh about this a little bit. And actually, AOC challenged me to live tweet my reactions to it, which is something I'd never really done before. But she told me I've gotten so middle aged, I'm behind the time. So I just tweeted all night, and it <laughs> actually, it for me it was a great cathartic release. And at one point, I tweeted that he had already succeeded in one of his goals because America was no longer woke. <laughs> but if I can just go back to, to Raj's last point, the headline is that th- this package does pay for itself in terms of higher taxes on the wealthiest people and corporations. And we're not running away from that. And we're not murmuring it or whispering it. We're telling people that's what we're doing. And we're seeing tremendous response in the public to that. People understand that huge, dangerous inequalities have grown up in The society. And one of the great things about America is people can get rich and people can get wealthy and all that is to the good. But it's got to be within the context of a society where everybody's basic needs are met, where the wealthiest society that's ever existed. And so the tax issue is profound. It is scary to think that the IRS tax collection machinery is down 90 billion dollars because each dollar invested there is estimated to create something like $10 or $20 coming back. That's exactly right, yeah. So, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. In a lot of countries, in a lot of democratic countries in Europe, the tax collectors are pop cult heroes. I mean, people love them precisely for the reason Raj is saying, which is nobody loves paying taxes, but people understand that's the price you pay for civilization, as Oliver Wendell Holmes put it. But what they hate is the idea that there are people out there who are not paying their taxes. And so it undermines the cohesion of the system. And I'm just astonished to see Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans getting up and saying, no, we don't want any more money for enforcement, even though all of the IRS agents who are neutral civil servants are telling us that we're leaving hundreds of billions of dollars on the table. Well, that tells you who the Republicans think they represent today, because it's overwhelmingly the wealthiest people in the corporations who have the lawyers and the scams to get away with that. Most people, it's a relatively simple thing to file their taxes.
2: Yeah, let's stick with that for a minute, Laura. So not a single Republican vote, unlike the infrastructure bill. And as you say, checks are coming into people's bank accounts, and soon, and there's a midterm coming up. Can it really work for the Republicans to be monolithically, intransigently opposed to this revolutionary bounty that is coming?
1: Maybe. And I say that because to date, some of the people who would benefit the most from some of the president's policies are so staunchly against anything that he does in principle that they don't really care or want to hear it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whatever is working, it can't be because of him. And whatever's not working has to be because of something that he did, because that's what they're being told every single day on Fox News. That's the platform right now. If we could think of it in that way, that the GOB platform is just to be anti Biden. I think that's just a fact. Republicans are nothing if not a coalition when it comes to that fact. There are are certainly people on the edges. You think of the Adam Kinzinger's and the Cheney's of the world who have decided there are some lines in the sand that they want to draw on some issues. But on some of this other stuff, they're still very conservative and they're still very much not in line with the president's policy positions. And to be frank, the White House will have to do a better job selling. To date, he has not seemingly been able to do that in a successful way. And I think there are a lot of reasons that has happened so far, some beyond their control, some very much in a messaging problem that they seem to have. They do not seem to be able to convince people, at least in, in large swaths, of the country, that they are actually doing things that will benefit them in an enormous way.
2: And we'll see how it plays, because I don't mean to be blithe about it. It is a real question, because even in the wake of the infrastructure bill, not only do Biden's numbers remain fairly low, but there's a apocalyptic kinds of commentary out there. But I don't want to interrupt the very well-deserved victory lap for the two congressmen here. This is
0: the only exercise I got all day, man. Exactly, right?
2: (laughs) Okay, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we are going to be explaining the legal ins and outs of Perjury. And to do it, we're really pleased to welcome Adam Weiner of Low Cut Connie, a rock and roll band out of Philadelphia. The band has earned praise for its high energy live performances, which the Los Angeles Weekly described as unmatched in all of rock right now. Low Cut Connie has also gained notoriety for its high profile endorsements such as a surprise inclusion on the Spotify Summer 2015 playlist of none other than our coolest president, Barack Obama, and a personal association with Elton John, who's called the band one of his favorites. Drummer bassist Jare Lewis joined in 2019. So I give you Adam Weiner on Perjury.
5: What is Perjury. Perjury, direct from the Latin for false oath, occurs when a person lies after taking an oath to tell the truth. Perjury is a felony under federal law. It can be punished with a prison sentence of up to five years, though in practice sentences are typically far shorter. Perjury requires more than saying something untrue. Rather, the testifier must knowingly make the false statement and it must be material knowingly does not mean that the witness believes, even if wrongly, the statement to be true, but rather knows that it is false. Material means that the lie has a natural tendency to influence or is capable of influencing the decision of the body to which it was addressed. So, a lie about an innocuous side issue, for example, that a witness was skipping work rather than going to the doctor when he saw a car accident. The narrowness of the rule for perjury is purposeful. People have faulty memories and the stress of formal proceedings can produce less than perfectly accurate testimony. It is the intent to lie and the importance of the lie that makes it criminal. However, they do happen. Some high profile perjury cases include President Trump's former attorney Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress about a Trump Tower project in Moscow, Russia. The impeachment of President Clinton, which rested in part on charges lying to a grand jury about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and LAPD Detective Mark Furman, a witness at the O.J. Simpson trial, who faced a perjury charge for claiming that he had never used racial slurs, which the defense consequently disproved with witness statements and recorded tapes. Despite the simplicity of perjury on its face, it is actually a very difficult charge to prove. Often, it boils down to semantics and subjective beliefs. So, we don't see perjury charges that often, but when we do, the results can be serious. For Talking Feds, I'm Adam Weiner, a.k.a. Low Cut Connie.
2: Thank you very much, Adam Weiner. Low Cut Connie's latest album, Private Lives, is now out. Their tour for the album kicks off next year. You can get tickets at lowcutconny.com.
1: Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again. That's OurHealthCalifornia.org.
2: All right. In the middle of all this, news comes from Wisconsin of a unanimous, not guilty verdict for Rittenhouse. Probably people following the trial closely weren't surprised for a number of reasons, not least of which is the beyond a reasonable doubt burden that the state had to make on self-defense claim of Rittenhouse, which the jury agreed with. You know, I think it's very fraught to draw broader social messages from individual trials and what happens on the facts and law in a room. But we're going to certainly have, and it will depend what happens with the McMichaels trial that's currently happening. But nevertheless, do you have any impressions in the immediate wake of the verdict? And do you think it's going to be a tumultuous chapter and response in much of America?
1: I don't think that you can not recognize the fact that we have these two trials being covered minute to minute, mostly because they have cameras in the courtroom, right? There are all kinds of interesting cases going on all over the country that we are not spotlighting because we don't get a front seat in in witnessing justice in the way that we have in these cases. Think about the Unite the Right trial that's going on in Charlottesville. It's a fascinating case. And there's all kinds of interesting questions there, but we just haven't been covering it as breathlessly because we don't get cameras in the courtroom. So that's, I think, number one is why America's attention has been captured. But you can't help but notice also, even though the facts are very different, they are fundamentally both Rittenhouse and McMichael's about who gets to claim a right to self-defense successfully. And you can't also help but feel that there is a sense, particularly among people of color, that Riddenhouse was so shocking if you think about the defendant being of another race. You just cannot imagine a 17-year-old black man in America walking down the streets of Kenosha armed with an AR-15 style rifle and having the police say, I'm so glad you're here. it's a fact pattern you probably wouldn't see. What I think is important is that a lot of people saw that verdict coming because they saw the system working in his favor to begin with. The fact that he was able to go home that night to his family, the fact that his mom was able to help him get there, all those facts leading up to it is, I think, playing into how the public's perception of this case. Whether or not you agree with the verdict, I think there are a lot of people in the country who view the result a product of a system that has gone on since the beginning of time.
0: I think the average person hearing the verdict today is probably scratching their head and say, how could this possibly happen? Obviously, if you paid close attention to the trial, you may or may not agree with the verdict. But one thing that I think about in this case is just the prevalence of vigilantism that's happening and its connection to what's called domestic violent extremism. You know, the FBI says this is the biggest threat to our homeland security right now.
2: Right. More than international terrorists, right?
0: Even more than international terrorists right now, domestically. I have a feeling that the very people cheering this verdict today are members of those movements. And what we ended up seeing today was almost a vindication of this dark cloud that is enveloping parts of America and quite frankly, parts of the other party, that allows for violence to be used to somehow get their way, whether it's on January 6th, whether it's in this particular situation on the streets of Kenosha, and whether it's in any other forum where political speech or speech would have been used prior, I think violence is now used as the tool to get your way. And I'm very concerned about that. And that's something that I'm, I'm just thinking about now.
2: Congressman Raskin, you're a lawyer, and I know you really would insist on the importance of facts and law in a particular room, and you've had other things on your mind the last week. But I, so I don't want to ask you to second guess the trial result, but along the same lines, do you see any kind of broader social message, concern, issue in the aftermath of the trial?
3: Let me start with this. It was refreshing to see President Biden say that he believes in the jury system and he accepts the jury verdict. If Trump had been president and the verdict had gone the other way, that he would be railing about it and the railroad and the injustice and so on. And so there's something that is reassuring and refreshing to what Biden said. I will say you're correct. I was not able to follow this trial closely. I would have loved, as uh, Laura was saying, to follow it on, on TV. I only got to watch for about maybe seven or eight minutes. But even in that very tiny, concentrated time, I was appalled at the conduct of that judge who seemed overwhelmingly lopsided in his approach to things. Of course, once you've got an acquittal because of double jeopardy, there's nothing really to be said about that. And it does underscore the importance of getting real judges on the bench. Unfortunately, we're coming out of a period where there was an exception carved out to the filibuster, not for voting rights, but for judicial nominations. And Donald Trump was able to steamroller the addition of just hundreds of semi-qualified and unqualified right-wing Federalist Society bloggers from all over the country onto the federal judiciary. That's something that we need to be taking seriously. But in terms of the general question of violence, I'm pretty much where I think my friend Raja Krishnamurthy is on this. You studied the history of fascism, the intersection, the overlapping, and ultimately the merger of formal military and police forces with paramilitary forces and people who decide that they're going vigilante style to back up the police or fortify the police is really a strong sign of fascism emerging. And there are a lot of very unstable people like Kyle Rittenhouse who've been activated by right-wing authoritarian politics in the country. This is something we've been working on in our Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and the broader committee, which Raj serves on with me. And I'm about to be introducing some legislation to deal with the problem of extra-legal militias in the country. And that's the structural problem that we need to be dealing with. So people are not afraid to go out in public and exercise their First Amendment rights because they think that some lunatics with an AR-15 are going to
2: come along and claim to be asserting self-defense. I will agree and underscore that I think it showed the foibles of an elected judiciary system. We only have a minute left. I'm going to call an audible on our Talking Five and ask each of you, five words or less, will Mark Meadows testify before the January 6th Select Committee?
0: A subpoena has been served.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Very lawyerly. I think Congressman Raskin, given his place, has pride of last answer here. So, Laura?
1: Eventually, but not on all topics.
2: Uh, Alas, I have no comment. (laughs) 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 Probably some middle ground. All right. That's all the time we have this week on Talking Feds. Thank you very much to Laura Jarrett, Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where all our episodes are posted. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have them there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. So you can find, just from the last few days, discussions about the great resignation and people's departure from the workplace, the future of work and the technology that will drive it, and coming this week, a one-on-one discussion with the redoubtable Anne Applebaum about her latest cover story, in the Atlantic. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we have and then decide if you would like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal and political systems for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds We'll keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohen Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producers are Dustin Canals and Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Adam Wiener of the great Low Cut Connie for explaining perjury to us in today's sidebar. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC and Harry Littman. Talk to you later.